You know the casting fantasy. You're walking down the street in Los Angeles and someone runs up to you and taps you on the shoulder. They just think you have it, an undeniable star quality that radiates off of you. You grab a business card and suddenly you too can be a movie star. I've seen actors, I've worn down actors at malls. Here's casting director Kim Taylor Coleman. You've heard from her earlier this season. I was an associate on the movie The Life of Bob Marley. And Vicki Thomas, she had been traveling like all over looking for him. And I was in the Beverly Center going up the escalator and this guy was going down. I'm like, oh my gosh, he looks just like Bob Marley. I, I can't believe it. And I literally ran through the mall and I said, I'm, I caught up with him. I said, I'm not crazy. I'm not a crazy woman, but are you an actor? That's an amazing story. So the fantasy that you could get discovered out here in L.A. That could totally happen. So we know by now that this isn't how most films get cast. But looking for new talent is a completely different process than looking through the Academy Players Directory, and one that can allow for creativity, discovery, and inclusion on a casting director's part. Up until now, we've been following the history of casting somewhat chronologically. But from this point forward, we're going to talk about different practices in modern-day casting, starting with casting unknowns. So for this episode, we're picking up in 2001 with the John Singleton film, Baby Boy. The thing that I, I always loved about working with John is that John was the type of artist, he loved breaking out new talent. This is Kimberly Hardin. She's a casting director. She also was a longtime collaborator of John Singleton, known for films including Boys in the Hood, Shaft, and the movies we're really going to dig into in this episode, Baby Boy and Too Fast, Too Furious. In their work together, John Singleton and Kimberly Hardin really exemplified the idea of casting to the soul of a character. The late John Singleton was the youngest filmmaker and the first Black filmmaker to be nominated for Best Director. He burst onto the scene fresh out of USC Film School with his 1991 debut feature film, Boys in the Hood. He was a prolific and groundbreaking director who championed diversity, authenticity, and sincerity in the film industry. And he cared about holding that door open for other creatives, saying in a 2006 interview that he wanted to be, quote, a godfather to a new generation of filmmakers. Fresh faces and opportunity were a huge part of what mattered to John Singleton and his work. For the film Baby Boy, a coming-of-age hood dramedy, Kim Harden was tasked with finding actors to play tumultuous lovers Jody and Yvette. She found Tyrese Gibson, at the time a young singer and MTV host who had been in one Coca-Cola commercial, and a green actress named Taraji P. Henson. Here's a clip of Taraji and Tyrese in Baby Boy. I can't believe I fell for all that shit you was talking the other night. How about how you gonna do right by me and JoJo? How you not gonna cheat no more? How you not gonna hurt me? Keep breaking my heart, stepping on it and shit. What is all of that, Jody? Huh? I'm writing on the money. Give me my change. How does it feel for you when you look back at that moment when you're about to, you know, really break mm. these artists for the first time? I don't, you know what? I don't really think about my life like that, quite mm. honestly. I'm proud to make a difference in people's lives. 
Well, it's just that simple for me. You're in front of the camera. Let me make you shine. While she may not have chased him down in a mall, Kimberly Harden took Tyrese from starring in a Coca-Cola commercial to starring in one of the highest grossing and most diverse franchises of all time. He did the stare and drive on you, didn't he? He got that from me. The Fast and Furious franchise. I got a problem with authority. You just need to chill out. We continue talking with Kimberly Harden about the arc of her career, how she's seen casting evolve, and how she chased Ludacris down for a Too Fast, Too Furious audition after this break. Hi, I'm Kimberly Harden, and I'm a casting director. So let's talk about your... Um your approach, like what's your, your philosophy when you are approaching a project? Every project is, you know, obviously different depending on the genre. I've definitely learned that the biopics that I do are very different from just a storytelling because you've got that added element of look or time period. But then there's also, too, the element of what I always call the business of the business, which is the name caliber actors that help sell the piece. When it comes to black talent, it's not as many options in that category, oftentimes to help sell that. So then that gives opportunity to help someone else that's just starting to come up the ladder to then kind of be seen. Because it's a fine line that we have to do as a casting director. We have to understand the artistry that the director is trying to do. I was kind of a... Uh, uh, I parlay it to the colors on the canvas that they want to paint, you know, and we have to help them see that color. But at the same time, we have to fulfill the needs of the producer, financiers, director, you know, studio production company um, of their business of selling. I have a very humbling persona. I'm no nonsense. I'm going to keep it real. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm not going to fluff. I'm not going to... Because I want actors to understand the world they're trying to step into. And oftentimes they're kind of pumped up for the sake of needing that affirmation that they're good, that they're great. And they need that to persevere, to keep moving. But oftentimes I don't know if they're really being told the truth, you know, about what they need to work on or what they, their strengths or their weaknesses. Now, for me, I'm very hands-on with my projects. So I try to be mindful of how many projects I take on at a, at a time so I can be very much more hands-on, not only with the talent, but for the director. Every casting director operates differently. And I really try to educate actors to do their homework on learning about different casting directors, you know? What is their thing? What does they like? What do they don't like? What kind of projects do they work on? What kind of filmmakers do they work on? You have to learn about us as well, too, because we all do not do our job the same. We might not operate the same. So let's talk about John Singleton. We can see John Singleton's commitment to breaking new talent in a gallery in the Academy Museum focused on his first film, Boys in the Hood, from 1991. Fresh screen faces Cuba Gooding Jr., Nia Long, Morris Chestnut, Angela Bassett, Tyra Farrell, and Ice Cube 
talk in videotape conversations with Singleton about the characters they're playing. I had the honor of interviewing John Singleton for a joint oral history by the Motion Picture and Television Academies. And he spoke with such pride about shooting in his neighborhood in South Central L.A. with a predominantly Black cast and crew. His vision and determination from such an early age not only earned him Oscar nominations right out of the gate, but also made him an impactful force who opened up the industry. How did you meet and how did you start working together? John, John, John. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, one of my mentors, being Jackie Brown, was um, John's first casting director. She did Boys in the Hood. For his third film, Higher Learning, he wanted to come back to Jackie. Jackie had a couple of things going on at the time, and at first was a little hesitant. But then she was like, Kim, you know, if we do this, then you're going to have to cover that film. And I was like... Okay. <laughs> and I had to win John over. I really did. He would always come down to our offices looking for Jackie. And I just remember, John, can I help you with anything? What do you need? You know? I was like a little puppy dog. <laughs> and I started the casting process and we were looking for the white supremacy role. So I had auditioned. Um, Cole Hauser came in to audition for me. And I was so blown away. I ran down the hall and I said, John, I think I found him. I want you to see this kid. And so I brought him down the hall. He auditioned for John. John flipped over him. And that's how I wanted him over. Wow. Wow. That's how I want him over. And then he just wanted me on all of his other projects. So what was the work process like with him? And what, what were the kinds of things he wanted to see in actors? How did you know what to bring to him? The thing that I I always loved about working with John is that John was the type of artist, he loved breaking out new talent. And I think because he had the opportunity to do that, you know, in Boys in the Hood, he always wanted to do that on all of his films. Now, he understood the business of the business and, you know, certain rules had to be, you know, roles had to be a certain level of talent. But in terms of wanting to find new talent, bring you to bring worked, him. Yeah. John really liked working to shape and mold talent. That was like his thing he loved doing. And I, of course, I loved it because it gave me opportunity to give people their first opportunity. I want to ask you a side question related to this mm -hmm. because you were so in the mix in this moment when hip hop artists were really seriously pursuing acting careers. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, from your perspective, what were you seeing in terms of their interests, their abilities? Like, how did you know when somebody would translate really well on screen in a role? I don't know where I got the talent skill from. It was just something maybe just because I've been doing it for so long. But I could see someone doing their audition and them not quite being on point. But if I see just like a little hint of something and how they did a line or a look or whatever, I would kind of feel like I would know if they had a coach and if they had the acting coach and was able to take that little bit and pull that more out of them, that they could probably fulfill the role. We kind of experienced that a lot on Baby Boy with Tyrese, you know? John wrote Baby Boy for Tupac. 
and uh, Tupac passed. And then John was just like, okay, you gotta find me the next Tupac. And I was like, okay. And I had worked with Jackie on this Coca-Cola commercial and we found Tyrese. So as I was going through my casting process, he was one of the people I wanted to try to bring in for an audition. And he couldn't come in for a while because he was doing something for MTV. He finally came in and auditioned and uh, he needed work. We could tell he needed work, but he had something. You know, Reese has always had this energy. So we were like, if we could just kind of hone that in, he got something. So I think he, he, he definitely sparked something for me and John at the time. But then John's film Shaft got greenlit. And so he had to go and shoot that. And we didn't come back to Baby Boy for a year later. And then uh, John asked me if I thought that Tyrese could still, you know, do it. And I said, well, I think we should, you know, put him through some screen tests and test him with some girls and see, you know, how he does. And we'll be able to see from that process. Taraji had auditioned the year prior as well, too. And we kind of thought that she would be the girl as well. So when we came back, that's what we did. We did a screen test with uh, Tyrese and Taraji and a couple of other young ladies. And you could see from the screen test who kind of, you know, you kind of know when one actor makes the other actor react to something, especially if it's an improv situation, which is what Taraji did. Here's a clip of Taraji and Tyrese in the final cut of Baby Boy. Open the door, Yvette. Go away, Jody. Baby, I'm sorry I hit you, okay? You black my eye, too. What about me? What you mad at, girl? Jody, when you gonna grow up? When you gonna realize you really had something good? And then you just see it. It's just like, oh, yeah, she made him kind of react. You know, there were certain things that wasn't in the script that she did that just added so much more to her performance. It could be the littlest thing that another actor does in a scene. It's not a whole lot of people that are going to be right by the time we have to check all the boxes. Between the marketing, the look, you know, their interpretation, it narrows down real fast. Well, thanks to you, people can see this chemistry <laughs> read at the Academy Museum because it's on display oh, in wow. our performance gallery. And you held on to that. Yes, for, for 20 years, I held on to that. I don't even know. I don't even, you know, it was just a part of my keepsake. It was on a VHS tape. I didn't even, I didn't even realize. But then when I was asked to share something, I was just like, you know, I think I still have. And you guys were excited about being able to utilize it. And I owned it because it was so long ago. It wasn't owned by, you know, the studio system or anybody. So I was honored to share and I wonder what it's like for you when you look back at footage like that. And you, I mean, these are actors who have had amazing careers since then. It's a little different for us as casting directors because we're not looked upon like other department heads when it comes to the accolades that one can get from your work. I don't know if I would feel differently if we were able to get more notoriety for what we do as casting directors. And I don't like to be the center of attention much. So I just kind of stay back in the cut. 
My conversation with casting director Kimberly Hart continues after the break. So what do you look for when you're asked to find a fresh face? What is it that you're looking for? Mm, well, the fresh face could mean uh, something from as small as someone who's never done anything to someone who just hasn't had the opportunity to play like a lead. Look is the very first thing that goes into every single role. And that can derive from what the director is looking for to the casting director's artistry of what they feel as though this role should look like, you know? And that's where we get to kind of do our little sprinkle of the color. So we had Tyrese here at a screening of Too Fast, Too Furious. And he said, I don't know how anyone saw me in Baby Boy and said, put him in (laughs) Fast and Furious movies. So you cast those for John as well. And I wonder... How did you think to bring Tyrese to that? Well, you know what? I think what happens is what a lot of, um, what, what, what we all do in the industry is that when you see a fresh face in a project, and if they're carrying a lead in a film, especially by, you know, a filmmaker of the likes of John, then people want to know who he is. For Reese as an artist, knowing the type of artist that he is, from his perspective, he felt like, they wanted him just from that movie, and then they that's how then he got John. the fin- And it kind of doesn't really play out like that, mm. but I could see how he could feel that way. They were very specific on that project, on the elements that they wanted. Like, they knew that they wanted someone from the music industry in the film, and was really trying to pursue Ludacris. And he wasn't available to come into audition because he was touring with Eminem. And I asked his agent, when was he going to be the closest in California? And he was performing in San Diego, I think it was. And um, I said, okay, well, I'm going to drive to San Diego. And I took my camera and I drove to San Diego. And I went backstage, got all the you know people out of his dressing room, and I put them on tape before he opened for Eminem. And I told John on my way home, John was like, how did you do? I was like, I think he's our guy. He had rehearsed and worked with an acting coach on his tour bus for days prior to me coming. And he nailed it. Now, we didn't know how big the franchise was going to be, you know. But to see both of them, like, carry on for... It's like, my goodness. That's... I feel proud about that. They've been able to continue on with that story plot after all that time. Here's a clip of Tyrese in the Fast and Furious franchise. So I want to take a look like historically a little bit, because part of what we're doing on the podcast is we're looking at some of the real innovators in the field, people like Lynn Stallmaster, Marion Doherty and Ruben Cannon. And um, I'm curious about like how, in your view, 
casting has changed over time. Like how, you know, by the time you came along, like how has it evolved even across your own career? Yeah, I feel like I'm like like at the bottom, bottom, bottom of that tree with Marion Doherty because um, I was one of the last assistants that worked with Gail Levin, who's one of her last associates. We're still very dear friends. You know, when I got started in, in casting, that was the late 80s. There were still casting companies, I felt like. You know, Ruben Cannon and Associates, and Lynn Stallmaster and Associates. They were known to have a company. And so when you saw their credits, it, their credits showed that as well. I think somewhere in the 90s, that shifted where they didn't have the and Associates anymore. It's more the individual. It's one person. Does that one person pass the baton? Do you feel that casting is an underappreciated discipline? It's a, it's a very thankless job. I was thankful when we were able to finally become a part of a union because I could start building my retirement as a job, as a major job, you know, and have health insurance and whatnot. Because before we had the union, I was just like, if we just got residuals, and I'm not talking about a lot of money. When I see some of my product constantly running when I turn the TV on, I was like, if I just got 25 cents, there's your retirement right there. You have to learn how to let that go to be able to move on. And I try to, I try to educate those starting out. Be open-minded in this pursuit. You know, there's a lot of casting directors that were once pursuing being an actor. You know, there's various other careers within entertainment that you may end up being hugely successful from. If you don't make it, you know, in the types of roles or whatever you're doing as an actor, would just say, don't limit yourself just to that one lane. That was casting director Kimberly Harden. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. Join us next week when we talk about casting against type. Academy Museum Podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producer is Monica Bushman. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website 
LAS.com slash podcasts is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 